Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. We've been just inundated with emails and messages wanting to know an update on your boobs. (laughs) What's new, right? Boob update. Um, yeah, so in case you missed the the previous boob update, there's been some <laughs> stuff going on, and it's been a real hassle. Uh, so there, we're at today. Yep. We uh, were able to get an appointment for an ultrasound, and it appears as though everything that needs to be at the uh, ultrasound place, as far as paperwork, is there. So I have an appointment on Monday that right. does... Which which was this past Monday, because we're recording this before we head out on the road for our mini tour. Uh, the, the issue is that because of all of these snafus, mm. um, this will be the fourth time yeah. that you've tried to go and get this done. We had to <laughs> we had to eat your airfare to Tennessee. Yep. Uh, I'm flying out with a couple of people that are helping us. And... I'm going to go to my appointment by myself and then fly out later on in the day to meet you there. At a ridiculously expensive cost. It's true. But and it, I can't even have that delicious corn. Like City Taps in, in uh, Nashville is closed the night we're there. Yeah. Is That's, that not, was that not your main concern no, about this whole, no. no? The corn issue, no. That's pretty much what I was most worried <laughs> ne- about. Neither was the ridiculous amount of money that they charged us. And, and on top of having to eat your your plane ticket. The most important thing to me is that you get in on Monday, and and I'm hoping that everything uh, goes well and that they are able to at least complete the procedure. Yeah, because I was like, all right, well, this has been too much, and we'll just wait until after we get back. And you were so rude to me about <laughs> what I said. You were like, absolutely not. And you don't normally like absolutely not me. Yeah. Um, so I was taken aback. Yeah. First and well, foremost. I didn't mean to take you aback. And, <laughs> and then I was like, hello. <laughs> um, and then I was like, no. <clears throat> yeah. And we, we discussed it like adults. Yeah, we did. Eventually we got, we got past uh, Kat's oppositional defiance. Um, and, uh, we'll let you know how things are going. Probably we've, we've already done some kind of an update on social media by sure. now, but uh, that's what we, we wanted to give you an update where we were since the uh, previous episode and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll let you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
In the meantime, I've got one for you. Yes, please. I also have a story. Here it what? goes. What? The mystery letters began showing up in Mary Gillespie's mailbox in the summer of 1976. The first letter was postmarked from Columbus, and uh, it was not signed. There was also no return address on the envelope. Uh, this was in Ohio. And uh, the letter accused Mary of having an affair with a man named Gordon Massey, who was the Westfall School District uh, Superintendent. This was the beginning of a decades-long series of events that still baffle many today uh, in Circleville, Ohio. <gasps> Circleville. I am enchanted by this story. You know I'm story? so happy that you're doing this. Please tell me everything you know. The first letter went on to say, quote, I know where you live. I've been observing your house and I know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Now, that'd be scary and, and unsettling enough. But then her husband started his her husband's name was Ron. He started getting letters as well. My aunt's husband's name is Ron. These letters told him the same thing, that his wife uh, was having an affair with the school superintendent Rude. and that if he he should go to the school board and expose it. And if he didn't, the letter went on to say he risked being killed. Well, obviously, immediately, even if I didn't know more about this story, my first thought is second in line to the head of the school board. Yeah, 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 that's... <laughs> Who's got the motive? You have brilliant deductive skills. Thank you. <laughs> well, obviously, Ron and Mary discussed this, and Mary denied allegations uh, of uh, uh, extramarital affair mm -hmm. and assured Ron it was not true. And they thought at this point that maybe the letters would just stop and they'd, they'd keep quiet and hope that it went away. Sure. But it didn't. A few weeks went by, and more threatening letters began to show up at their house. One of the letters threatened Mary by saying if she did not end the affair... Which she claims wasn't happening in the first place. Then the author of the letter would disclose all of the information on billboard ads and the CB radio. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. That was Facebook back in the day. Instead of FB, it was CB. <laughs> breaker, breaker, 6-9, am I right? <laughs> hey, school superintendent banger, you got your ears on? Looks like there's a Smokey up ahead. Better go double nickel on the other side of the bridge. I don't know why it is, but back in the day when CBs were popular, nobody talked normally. It was always like, yeah, no, Breaker. Uh, my, no. It's like a 1930s gangster guy. Was that, was, did they talk in code so that other people wouldn't know what they were saying? Or did they just think it was good fun times? They, well, both. I think that initially there was a code, a trucker's code. Like about police and stuff. Right. Like a go to double nickel. That means drop down to the speed limit of 55. Oh, you know. that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Right. God, I'm old. So at this point, Ron and Mary, the Gillespies, decided to seek advice from family members, and Ron's sister Karen and her husband Paul were the ones that they confided in. Paul Fresher, he was an employee at the Anheuser-Busch plant, but once was a prison guard, and he was one of the guards that was taken hostage in August of 68 at Ohio State Penitentiary. He oh was goodness. held hostage for over 30 hours, so they thought he might have some insight on how to deal with stuff like this. Okay, that's... Well, he was in law enforcement sure. and dealt with criminals and stuff. You know who I'd put on the job? Sam Porter. One of our admins from the uh, Freaks group? Yeah. Yeah. Sam... And Rad Dude. Yeah, he's a loss prevention officer. Yeah. He, he was. He was. Oh, that's right. He'd be perfect. Now, when they talked to Paul, Mary told him she thought, and she had a, uh, a theory, 
there was she had a particular suspect in mind. It appears as though a man named da- David Longberry, who also was a bus driver like Mary, um, he had made a pass at her at some bus driver event, I guess. I oh, don't know. The bus driver's ball? The bus driver's ball. And so she thought maybe this was the motivation behind these letters that Longbury may be feeling jilted. Paul said he'd take care of it. He'd write a letter to Longbury and get him to stop. And for a little while it did. But then, not letters, but signs started popping up all over town. You know, like those political signs during election season? Mm-hmm. Kind of like that. Only these weren't political signs. These were more taunting in nature, even for political signs. The signs claimed that Gordon Massey, again, the superintendent, was romantically involved with Gillespie's 12-year-old daughter, Tracy. Oh, that's you. That's not a thing. You can't be romantically involved with a 12-year-old. No, no but um, that's how it was worded. Okay, well, that's... Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Totally understand what you're saying. Ron wasted no time in driving all over town, tearing these signs down before his daughter could see them. Oh, jeez. And things just started to get weirder. And things just started to get weirder. On the 19th of August in 1977, Ron received a call from somebody taunting him, claiming to be the writer of the letters. He said he recognized the voice and he got his gun and he told his kids he was going to talk to the person who was writing the letters. Now, at this point, because there have been signs up all over the place, anyone could be pretending to be the letter writer, right? True. It was out in the open at that point. Right. Oh, gosh, I just said right so many times. Unfortunately, Ron was found dead just a few hours later (gasps) from his truck crashing into a tree. And it was determined that before he died, he had fired his gun. But the official report from the sheriff's office was that he died as a result of a drunk driving accident. The autopsy revealed that Ron had a blood alcohol level twice the legal limit at 0.16. And friends and relatives thought this was really suspicious. They didn't believe it. They said Ron was not a heavy drinker. He did drink socially on occasion, but he had not been drinking that day before he left. Pretty soon more letters started arriving, but this time to residents all over town. They started claiming that Sheriff Radcliffe, who had investigated the accident, was involved in some sort of a cover-up regarding Ron's death. They claimed that Mary, Ron's wife, and Gordon Massey, the superintendent, were responsible for having Ron killed. Wow. Wow. This is a lot. It's a lot going on here. Okay, so back to Paul and Karen Fresher. At this time, they were going through a divorce, and Mary offered the trailer on her property for Karen to stay in during the proceedings. About this time, Mary admitted to Karen that she actually had had an affair with the superintendent, (gasps) but it had started after the letters began arriving. What, they were like, oh yeah, that's not a bad idea? Yeah, I guess. That's what she was suggesting. Very strange. Then on February 7th, 1983, Mary was driving her bus route and noticed a sign in a yard. This one made it an obscene remark about her young daughter, Tracy. So she parked the bus and she got out and she picked up the sign. She pulled the post up and everything, removed the entire thing, put it on the bus, finished her route. That evening, she was looking more closely at the sign and the post and she saw a small container on the side of the post. Inside was a 25 caliber handgun. It had been designed with the idea that she would be angry and go up and rip the sign down and the gun was rigged to go off. (gasps) But by her taking the whole post out of the ground, it did not fire. She took the gun to the sheriff's department and the investigation to trace the ownership of the uh, firearm began. The serial number had been filed off, but not 
completely. They got enough information to identify who the gun belonged to. And of course, the idea behind that was that was also going to be the person who had been writing these letters and putting these signs up. Yeah. The gun belonged to Paul Fresher. (gasps) Paul was arrested but released on $50,000 bond. Paul the brother-in-law? Yeah. Fresher maintained his innocence, but the evidence was pretty damning. In fact, a co-worker of Paul's testified that Paul had purchased the gun from him for $35. Personal records show that Paul had taken the day off from work the same day that Mary discovered the booby trap. And according to handwriting experts, they were able to match 391 of the letters and uh, 103 postcards sent to the Gillespie's and other recipients to Paul's handwriting. Wow. Over the years, over 1,000 letters and cards had been sent. I have questions. Yeah. Now, wouldn't if you, I mean, if you're in a relationship with a, with a human person mm-hmm. and they're writing thousands of letters to randos and making signs and stuff. Right. Wouldn't you notice that? Yeah. If you're living with somebody, how do you hide that? That's what I'm saying. I mean, a thousand letters. Think about that. I remember as a kid, I had a 3,000 word essay and I thought that would never end. I can't imagine what it would be like to, to do a thousand letters. And these were not typed or printed out uh, with a printer or anything. It was before personal computers at home were widely available. These were all handwritten. He did admit that he bought the gun, but he said he didn't know what happened to it. It disappeared. Uh huh. As for the letters, he said the sheriff had asked him, to try to copy samples of the offending letters, and then he used those letters to match them to him. And there were rumors that the sheriff had Mm. been involved in the cover-up in the first place. Yep. Oh my goodness, who is telling the truth here? The trial lasted just a week, and the jury took only two and a half hours to return a guilty verdict under the charge of attempted murder using a firearm that was either that was either in his possession or control or under his control. He was not charged, however, with writing any of the letters. He was sentenced to 7 to 25 years with an additional three years for controlling a firearm during an offense. But it didn't end there. Oh, man. Even when he was imprisoned, and sometimes he was in solitary confinement and had no access to writing utensils, letters would continue to show up at residences in the area. Mm-hmm. Even Fresher received one at the prison that taunted him after a parole hearing had rejected his request for early release. In the prison letter he received, it said, quote, Now when are you going to believe you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? And in addition, some of those letters that showed up at people's houses that had been mailed while he was in solitary confinement and Mm -hmm. had no access to stationary or Mm -hmm. letter writing materials, they had his fingerprints on them. Yeah. Very strange indeed. So it sounds like maybe he had a partner and the partner screwed him over. Well, there are many who still think that Paul was framed. But if he was guilty, what were his motives for writing these letters? There doesn't seem to be a clear motive in this. He was going through a divorce. It was, I guess, a pretty heated one. And his soon-to-be ex was Ron's sister. But I I just, I, I don't know. There just doesn't seem to be a clear motive. Yeah. Paul passed away. Uh, in 2020. In jail? No, he, he got out. Okay. There has been no new evidence uncovered 
in what's become known as the Circleville Letters case. CBS last year uh, hired some handwriting experts. They said that they were able to identify some letters that were written similarly, like he made his G's like sixes, Mm -hmm. for example. Um, But if anything, it cast more doubt on whether or not he was the guy. Or working alone. Or working alone. Wow. My information came from Mental Floss, Thought Catalog, and CBS News. That was a ride. Yeah. And very upsetting. I wish we knew the answers. If you have any theories, send them to us. I'd love to hear them. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. And now, that thing in the middle. Do you remember growing up and being so excited at the end of the day when the teacher didn't give you homework? You probably thought that homework was always part of the school system. Not true. Homework didn't become common until the late 1800s or early 1900s, and it was extremely controversial. In fact, physicians crusaded against it, and in 1901, California even passed a law which banned homework for anyone under the age of 15. Kelly sent us an email. First off, I'm a huge fan and super sad to be almost caught up with your shows. (laughs) Probably be done today. Crying emoji. I agree with Kat regarding convertible cars. Thank you. You had said at one point that the reason you don't like riding in convertibles is because it makes your face feel like dirty feet. Yep. Kelly said, when I drive around with just the windows down, my hair feels so dirty after just a couple of hours. And we live in rural Missouri. Popu- oh, wow. I popula- love the way you said Missouri. Population here is almost non-existent. I can't imagine what it does to have your hair and skin in an area where it's a lot more polluted. Mm. Um, really hope to see you in Missouri or <laughs> close by. Would love to come to see you live. Your Missouri girl, Kelly K. Thanks, Kelly. And uh, yeah, we want to see all the places and do shows in all the places. Or We just don't want to get there in a convertible. Yeah. No. Now with 30% more tasty nutrients to help turn mealtime into fun time. This is The Box of Oddities. What you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What? What what you got for me? People, the people they've spoken. Goodness, it's back. Yeah, but for those of you who hate it, I'll use it sparingly. Yeah, I think that was the result of the poll on the Freaks group is uh, I certainly would like for it to return, but occasionally. Yeah, just occasionally. So So that's that's, fair enough. That's what we're going to do. What you got for me? Anna Maria Helena, Comtesse de Noailles. I just bashed the blinds. Oh, sorry. You're gesticulating. I am. I you must feel strongly about this. <laughs> well, I had to look up how to pronounce Noaille. Oh. So I wanted to make sure I was doing it right. And that means with that French flair, uh-huh. <clears throat> which for me means punching the Venetian blinds in our which, guest room. Which is odd because they're from Venice. Anna was born in England and married into the French aristocracy. She was born in 1826, the daughter of William Gordon Coesvelt and Anna Maria Baring. And she was the granddaughter of Henry Baring, who was a banker and politician, and his wife, Maria Bingham, who was an American heiress. You know, that whole era of like American princesses kind of thing. Yeah, where, where they, they married into British 
nobility. Right. And it was kind of a mutual thing where the nobility needed the money and they wanted the title and yeah. Right. Um, But in this case, it was Anna being a combination of that French aristocracy and the granddaughter of an American heiress. So she was doing pretty okay. She had several houses in England and Paris and Montpelier and the French Riviera, which she moved between frequently. Anna entered into a beneficial marriage to Comte de Noailles in 1849, adding to her already pretty okay status as a lady of means. But after, unfortunately, losing their only child, after only three years of marriage, the couple decided to live permanently apart. Mm. This led to a life of Anna doing as she pleased. She was a lady of money, so she could do exactly that. She was an advocate for women's rights and was an important shareholder of the English Women's Journal. They covered employment and equality issues for women. And this also made her a major supporter of the Langham Place Group, which campaigned on several issues from the mid-1850s to the mid-1860s. Well done, lady suffragette. Votes for women! Anna had some interesting theories on wellness. Some were not so outlandish. She used onions on doorknobs to ward off infection. And onions have long been thought to lessen bad air. So, Mm. yeah, totally. Absolutely. Also, also, people don't touch your doorknob because they're going to smell like onions. That's a good point. And it keeps all the germs off that way. (laughs) Anna would leave England when the leaves started to drop from the trees. She thought that that was a sign that the air wasn't healthy and that the flu was about. But she also believed that England straight up had too many oak trees. So she just didn't like that. Wow. She also believed that if you wanted to prevent bronchitis, you had to eat copious amounts of herring roe. I thought you were going to say heroin. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, that'll cure it. Absolutely. She also slept with squirrel fur tied in stockings around her head to prevent wrinkles. Mm-hmm. So you can see okay. how there there were some ideas. Some eccentricities. Anna allegedly only ate food if it was served to her while she was sitting behind a two-foot-high silk screen. Wow. So t- to hide her eating? Unclear. Or was it on the floor and it just, you know, covered her up to the waist? Not sure. Like, what are you doing behind that screen while you're eating? I'm not touching your doorknobs. Anna also enjoyed a glass of port, but she insisted that it was served to her at sunset, mixed with a little bit of sugar, also diluted with fresh rainwater. She was concerned about her eyesight, and so uh, she would have a piece of blue silk wrapped around her brass bedroom door as protection against excessive glare. Oh, Okay. So on one side of the door was onions. On the other side, she had blue silk because the glare off the brass doorknob was going to harm her eyes. They were sprained, the eyes. Maybe it was the onion that was bothering her eyes and she didn't realize. Oh, did you see that video of the cat who was watching their person cut onions? And you could tell the cat was so uncomfortable, but just wanted to be a part of what was going on. (laughs) It was so cute. Blinking the little cat eyes in great, great pain. Anna was also convinced that inhaling large daily doses of methane fresh from a cow's butt would bring her (laughs) a long and healthy life. All right. How exactly 
did she procure fresh methane from the ass of a cow? She kept a herd of cows outside her bedroom window uh-huh. so she could be sure to get the full benefits of the gas. It would did, They would fart and it would waft into her bedroom. Okay, so she didn't just press her cheek against a cow's anus. No. Yeah, that'd be silly. No, she had a herd of cows. Mm-hmm. Near her bedroom. Yep. How many people have smelled a herd of cows? Not a pleasant aroma. It's not so great. But Anna believed it was keeping her well. In addition to her work on women's reform and interest in health and wellness, she was also a patron of the arts. And while perusing the salon, the official art exhibit the official art exhibition of the Académie des Beaux-Arts in Paris, mm-hmm. she fell in love with a painting by Ernest Herbert of a little girl. And when she inquired about the painting, she found that Baron Rothschild had already bought it. Now, she was a strong-minded woman, and she had the means to get what she wanted. So I like to think of this as kind of like a long-standing competition between two wealthy art lovers, Mm -hmm. and they were like social rivals, kind of like the two Lucilles, but there's absolutely nothing to corroborate that. Other than the fact that when Anna discovered that the painting of the little girl had already been purchased by Baron Rothschild, she decided that the next best thing was to find the model for the painting and buy her instead. <laughs> so she did. Uh, okay. Did she make her sit in that pose all the time? No. Wearing the same clothes? No. The little girl was seven years old and her name was Maria Pasqua and she was bought from her father for two bags of gold and the promise that she would be raised as a Catholic and treated as an equal. Wow. I guess she did get whatever she wanted. Yeah. Maria moved in with Anna and was raised as her daughter. So that meant that some of Anna's more interesting theories about health and wellness, as well as everything else, now applied to Maria. Of course. Maria was allowed to drink milk only from cows personally selected by Anna. I can only assume it was some of the the farting cows below her window. Um, Because children brought up on milk were less likely to become alcoholics. She was also dressed in, quote, Grecian clothing, uh, meaning very light and loose, because tight clothing was deadly. It could constrict your circulation and kill children. And that meant that even though Maria was sent to a convent school in Sussex, she was unable to wear the uniform. And so... um, she she was a standing out from the rest of the children wearing her Grecian garb while the other kids were wearing uniforms. Oh, that's a great way to fit in. Mm. Look, it's a pre-adolescent girl dressed completely different from all of us. Let's make her feel welcome. <laughs> Is that Grecian garb you're wearing? So then it became the school's responsibility to adhere to these guidelines, as well as some other very unusual requests. The school pond was drained because it was a a breeding ground for insects, Mm. and Anna was not going to have that. Maria was also taught grammar and arithmetic according to a system derived by Anna rather than the standard curriculum. Anna had a better way, Uh. I guess, of... Counting. Stuff. <laughs> Once when visiting Maria in Norfolk, Anna insisted that all the trees within the vicinity of the house were cut down before her arrival. I'm guessing they were oak trees, those fuckers. Yeah. Fucking oak trees. Yeah, it's unclear if it was the fall and she was worried about the leaves or if it was just her general disdain for trees. 
Upon her death, Anna's rules continued. There were several stipulations regarding her money and who would be receiving it and how it was to be used. Maria received an inheritance with some strange conditions. Um, She had to wear white all summer long and never wear lace shoes. (laughs) Even from beyond the grave. (laughs) By all accounts, though, she was a happy and healthy uh, young lady, and she married and settled in Norfolk. So apparently things worked out okay for Maria despite of and maybe because of Anna, you know, we don't know her, her dad sold her. So, yeah, right. you know, I, I probably better off. Can't say how that would have worked out. Anna also endowed an orphanage for the daughters of clergymen and sent accompanying rules with the cash gift, including that, of course, all the children had to b- drink plenty of milk mm. so as not to become alcoholics. They had to use phrenology to ensure a firm spirit. So obviously they all had to have their heads rubbed uh, constantly to make sure that they were the right shape. They should do cocaine about that. That's only if you've got ghosts in your blood. And they were instructed that no girl under the age of 10 should be taught math. Yeah, but this is coming from a woman who reeked of onions and cow farts. Yeah, but she was also a women's rights advocate. So the math thing had to be like some sort of thought process, like it would damage a girl's brain capacity later somehow. I don't know. It makes no sense, but it is glorious. And she sure did get her way. Anna Maria Helena, Comtesse de Noailles. And yeah, there go the Venetian blinds again. Fascinating. Wow, I love eccentric people from from long ago because I don't feel bad about making fun of them. Yeah, no, sure. That's what it's all about. What what would be the cutoff as far as how far back do you have to go before making fun of an eccentric person is okay? 50 years, maybe? I guess it depends on what way they were eccentric. Sure. Yeah, I guess. They were eccentric in a way that uh, hurt people, you know. Anytime is fine. Anytime is fine. There is no, no cutoff. It's kind of like when you do dumb things. If you are also someone who does things that are hurtful, then uh, we can make fun of you for your dumb things. Right, exactly. Which is really the basis of our upcoming podcast, The Shallow End. (laughs) We'll tell you more about that. Should be uh, launching in a few weeks. I got most of my information from Cracked, History Collections, Medium.com, and of course, Wikipedia. Oh, I wanted to ask you something. Let me see if I can find that. It was a review on iTunes. Oh, jeez. What did I do now? You didn't do anything. No, I just, I don't remember this. Uh, love the Freaks, five stars. Quote, been listening since Georgia suggested it on My Favorite Murder, and I've never looked back. When did Georgia from My Favorite Murder mention us? I don't know. I don't know that that ever happened. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure we would have taken a week off and just gone on a bender. Yeah, I... just fanned ourselves with self-fancy. <laughs> Maybe she's thinking about Christine from And That's Why We Drink. Maybe. I think she mentioned us like on a Facebook thing or something. I'm not I'm not really sure. But uh I don't know, but then again, we don't always hear about things. I mean, I you know, I am so far behind on podcasts. Yeah. So I'm, you I'm, have to tell us. I'm almost <laughs> I'm almost up to box thirty seven on our back catalog. Um Yeah, but most of the time, unless you guys tell us that something's happened, we yeah, don't know. We don't know. <laughs> that's that's crazy. And we love those podcasts. You know, another podcast that we really like is Cautionary Tales podcast. Yeah, with uh, Tim Harford. Have you guys checked that out yet? It's uh, He's an author, and he finds the morals 
in moments from the greatest mistakes, tragic catastrophes and hilarious fiascos of the past. And uh, it's it's just, it's so well done. It's so well produced. You will have a front row seat as an award-winning choreographer and rock legend come dangerously close to opening the worst Broadway musical <laughs> of all time. Notice the tiny change in a hotel's blueprints that resulted in tons of concrete, steel, and glass crashing down on guests and swelter as a deadly heat wave descends on Chicago, killing some residents, but oddly sparing their near neighbors. Some stories will delight you, some might scare you, but they will all make you a little bit wiser. Cautionary tales, wherever you get your podcasts, we recommend it. History is littered with tragic stories from which we could all learn valuable lessons, and that's what Cautionary Tales is all about. Five stars. And for you, our fellow freak, five stars. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. That is, two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.